Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, an incredible split screen moment in racial politics. The Supreme Court strikes down race-based college admissions. And just hours later, California's Reparations Task Force delivers its final report and recommendations. We're going to try to make sense of these cross currents and their potential impacts on politics in the Golden State and beyond. But first, we have a state budget deal. And we have, Just in the nick of time. Yes, thank you. Locally, the guy for handling that. I've covered my share of budgets, and I was not sad to sit this one out. But also with us today, Cal Matters reporter Alexi Kosev. He has been literally following Newsom around all year, just just tailing him. Um, Alexi, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. So we had a shortfall this year of nearly thirty-two billion dollars in California. But that wasn't really the main story here, right? I mean, what do you see as making this year's negotiations unique um, after, we should say, several years of surpluses? I mean, isn't that wild, right? California can have a nearly $32 billion budget and the fights are about something else entirely. But you're absolutely right. The big holdup this year in the budget was actually the negotiations over an infrastructure uh, legislative package that the governor has been trying to push through. And there was a lot of consternation because the bills that he's proposed, which would sort of try and streamline the permitting process and cut down on a lot of, you know, the administrative steps and time it takes to develop these big infrastructure projects. um, They were worried, uh, a lot of lawmakers were worried that this would apply to the Delta water conveyance tunnel, which is obviously a very controversial project here in the state. It would, you know, more quickly take water from the north of the state to the south of the state, something the north part of the state does not like, and a lot of environmentalists are worried will destroy the Delta. So, you know, through the back and forth, they ultimately came to an agreement that would sort of specifically leave that project out of, you know, the types of projects that would benefit from from this package. And that finally seemed to clear things up late Monday evening. 
And we can get into the significance of some of the CEQA reforms or their importance in a second. But to what extent do you feel like this idea, going back to last year, the legislature, I think there was a lot of feeling that when Newsom pushed some of his climate bills at the end of the session, he even bragged about, quote unquote, jamming Democrats in the legislature. To what extent do you feel like that animosity, that feeling kind of carried over into this Not process. Newsome, just coming up with a right, giant idea. This and is a giant idea, like with a few weeks left before the budget had to get passed. I know it's, you know, it's not that lawmakers were opposed to doing something like this, but he introduced this last month, less than six weeks ago. I mean, he wanted it to happen through a budget process that was going to be supposed to be done within that within the next month from when he introduced these bills. So there was just a lot of apprehension from the legislature about going forward with these you know, with these measures when when they had had time to fully analyze what the implications would be. Um, and, you know, to be fair, the Newsom didn't totally, you know, not get his way. I mean, he still is going to get these bills through likely next week. Um, he, you know, there was rumors that he would actually veto the budget if he did not get these bills. So he still has that bully pulpit and that power as a governor and, and he's able to get his way. But, you know, the legislature stood up for themselves this time and got something that was really important to them. And and they made very clear very publicly that they were not happy about this process. And so I think that reflected maybe a little bit of a shift back in the other direction after the governor, as you said, jamming the legislature and getting his way on some really big stuff last year at the last minute. Yeah, I mean, this comes as, as we said, there's a $32 billion budget hole, um, a lot of money in, you know, the rainy day fund. Um, they didn't use that money. They didn't hike taxes, do anything like that. I mean, what should your average citizen take away from this? I know uh, beyond CEQA, transit funding, child care stuff, uh, increasing child care provider of you know, payments, um, the amount of money people make to take care of kids was a big priority. I mean, those aren't things Newsom's opposed to on its face. Um, so, yeah, what do you think, like, what what's the biggest takeaway if you're just like an average person sitting at home, you know, God bless them, not paying attention to what's happening in Sacramento? And I definitely, yes, do not blame them for, for not sticking through this entire miserable process. But um, I would note that it's not entirely in a budget of austerity. There may have been a shortfall, but that didn't mean widespread cuts to programs that people want and need. You know, there are definitely things that were cut, things that that are going to be on pause because of it, particularly in the area of climate. I mean, this is something that's been a big priority for California, but one of the first places to to face the chop was billions of dollars in, in climate initiatives, which means less money for things like the transition to green energy or, um, you know, tax rebates for uh, electric vehicles, for example. Um, but in other areas, the the state still found room for growth. I mean, there's going to be additional funding for the University of California and California State University to accept more students. You know, I mean, th- these are things that are going to have a real you know, substantial benefit to the people of California. So, you know, there's there's pluses and minuses as there are in any kind of situation like this. So Newsom wanted, you know, as we mentioned, the infrastructure projects to get sped up. The legislature wanted more money for things like public transit, especially here in the Bay Area. Do you think there was a connection there? Like, did maybe some of the wins the legislature was able to get, did that have anything to do with ultimately 
them going along with this really ambitious sequel reform plan that the governor put forward? You know, I think with, in particular, the transit issue, I mean, that was something that the legislature just really set out as, you know, kind of their number one priority. And and they really stuck behind that and, and put it out there. And so in any sort of negotiation, there's going to be some give and take. And they got some of what they wanted because this was an area that they really wanted the governor to give. They didn't get everything they wanted. You know, there are still some financial issues that the... Um, that these transit agencies are going to face going forward. And and that's why, for example, State Senator Scott Weiner has introduced a bill to try and raise tolls in the Bay Area to provide uh, further funding for the transit agencies there. But, you know, they they got a big win here. They got, you know, some s- several billion dollars more um, in order to keep these agencies afloat for now and give them a little bit more time down the line to figure out how to stabilize themselves. Also, I should note Newsom signing one of the main budget bills on a completely empty BART car. <laughs> right, with Phil Ting. No, it wasn't completely empty. Assemblyman Phil Ting was That's with right. Him. Assemblyman Phil Ting and We some, were not invited yeah. now. Um okay, so before we let you go, Lexi, I'm just curious like you mentioned, I mean, it does seem like the legislature kind of flexed its muscle. Um, we had Speaker Anthony Rendon on last week, and he acknowledged that they ceded a lot of ground during the pandemic, as did most legislatures to executives, right? Um, and it seems like there's a desire to bring it back, you know, bring a little little bit of that power center back into um, the Assembly and Senate. We are, this week is the end of Rendon's speakership. He will be handing over the gavel to Robert Rebus of Salinas, new speaker, ostensibly new committee chairs. How do you think that could impact, you know, the ongoing negotiations of Rosica and then the end of the legislative session, which is honestly for folks that don't follow this again, God bless you. You know, a lot of this stuff does get worked out in the coming months and budget bills and things. So it's not like this is all buttoned up with a bow on top. And I guess, did it have any impact in what happened in the last week? Yeah. I'd wonder. You know, I, I think that, um, it's it's a, it's a little soon to say exactly what impact the transition could have on on the future just because you know we haven't even had a chance for Robert Rivas to make any sort of changes or anything that he he want would want to and I don't know how aggressive he'll be right out of the bat but Gavin Newsom did make an interesting comment today when I was up at an event with him uh, a fire related event in Grass Valley and he expressed his excitement for Robert Rivas coming in as the speaker, he mentioned that um, Robert Rivas was one of his early endorsers. And he said, quote, I have a bias for him. I'm a big fan of his. Um, so that really intrigued me. I didn't know that. And I'm, I'll be curious to see if they sort of work very closely hand in hand. You know, I know that Newsom has always had quite a close relationship with um, Senate pro tem uh, Tony Atkins. Mm-hmm. And and so maybe now he could also have, you know, a very, very close working relationship with the assembly speaker. And then maybe we would see some really intriguing, you know, legislative pushes of them, you know, coming down the pike together rather than sort of an opposition. Who knows? But that that's a dynamic that I know I'll be looking out for ahead. And it's of a- course, we'll be watching to see whose heads roll yeah. when it comes to committees, committees. and all the <laughs> I would other- just say it's, it's all love until the next veto. Yeah, right. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And also, like, yeah, we'll see. And it's all love until this new speaker actually starts exercising uh, his power. Alexi Kosev of Cal Matters, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. 
We are going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we will be joined by UC Berkeley researcher Stephen Menendian. He studies racial inequity and disparities and helped inform California's reparations task force work. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We're excited to welcome Stephen Menendian. He is assistant director of the Other and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, where he conducts research into topics including racial segregation and structural racism in America. Stephen, welcome to The Breakdown. Great to be with you. Well, we wanted you on today because it was quite the day uh, for racial politics. (laughs) And I guess to start, what do you make of these incredible kind of cross-current split-screen moment. SCOTUS, the highest court in the land, banning affirmative action in college admissions, even as California's reparations task force takes this historic step, uh, first step at least, of trying to confront the wrongs of our nation, really. It's almost a perfect metaphor for the larger what's happening in the larger society, where you see these enormous and potent steps forward met with furious and intense backlash. Um, And, you know, so it's the whole several steps forward, several steps back at the same time. Reparations is an incredibly challenging topic to deal with. And probably no state in the country has taken it as seriously as California over the the last two years with this with this um, pioneering task force. At the same time, there may be no more powerful reactionary institution in our government writ large, but particularly the federal government, than the Supreme Court. And we've seen that from Dobbs to today. So as you know, this task force, what they've released today, it really concludes like two years of research, of hearings. And I think there's an argument to be made that there's a lot of value just in putting together, compiling that history, both of of state harms against black Californians and then ways to calculate financial damages. But given the context that you're laying out of what's happening in red states and on the national scene, I guess, does it raise the stakes for this task force to do more than just kind of present these findings? Well, there's there's so many layers to this, but there is a set of recommendations that come with this history that the task force is really dropping into the lap of the legislature that will have to take up. And that's going to be uh, a political hot potato, of course. 
Um, there's so many difficult questions associated with reparations. Uh, what specifically is the harm to be remedied? Is it just slavery or is it Jim Crow and redlining and contemporary discrimination? Who qualifies? Is it just descendants of enslaved Americans or is it you know, um, people who are, let's say, descended from Caribbean uh, grandparents. Um, you know, not all Black Americans qualify, but only Black Americans would qualify. So there's a number of tricky questions. What would be the mechanism of reparation? Uh, you know, uh, the city of Bruce's Beach re repatriated returned land. Should it be a cash payment? Should it be something else? The city of San Francisco is grappling with this. So many tricky questions. Um, I think you're right. I think the state of California in many ways has led the country on important issues, on environmental change, on environmental protection, on standards for emissions. Uh, this could be another place where California blazes a trail. Uh, but there are large unanswered questions. One of the interesting points of convergence, though, between the Supreme Court's decisions today and the Reparation Task Force is that both Katanji uh, Brown-Jackson's dissent and the task force emphasize some of the key disparity statistics in American society, specifically the enormous and growing and mounting racial wealth disparities and gaps in home ownership, which are even more acute in California. Polls show that this is incredibly controversial and not just among white Americans or non-Black Americans, right? I mean, this is split the Black community as well. Um, and According to one national poll that the L.A. Times included in their story today, they talked about the most often cited reason wasn't the cost or complicated nature. It was just this perception that black Americans don't deserve remedies. And mm -hmm. I wonder what you make of that. And if part of this conversation for people that do believe that it should be happening is education in itself, like is, is that is there a value in having this conversation? Um, and could that convince, you know, people to kind of think about this differently? Well, the report is long. And the Supreme Court opinions today add up to almost 240 pages. Uh, the interim task force report, I think, was al almost 600 pages. So I hope that ordinary citizens, interested citizens will take up the challenge of engaging these materials, of reading reading the reports, at least the executive summaries, to try and really uh, make sense of what the task force is saying and listen to the testimony. There is an important educational function to this task force, but it has to be more than that. It has to be an effort to try to remedy some of these past harms and to push policymakers to do that. But as you mentioned, the public is really split on these issues. Uh, interestingly, Black Americans in surveys actually tend to support reparations more than affirmative action. So these are both very controversial uh, issues, but they're also very important. And they've made a significant difference, particularly affirmative action, to opening up opportunities for people of all backgrounds and races. The PPIC did a study recently looking at the work or, or polling uh, around the work of the Reparations Task Force, and they found that, quote, there's no evidence in the current survey that the task force has moved the needle in the past three years since it was created on views of racism and the legacy of slavery. Do you think that's a fair way to judge the task force work? Or to your point, is this maybe more about engaging policymakers laying out recommendations for how they should proceed because reminder this task force was created with a wide 
bipartisan vote and bipartisan celebration uh, back in 2020? Well, I think that a lot of this is downstream of culture, right? So the public awareness of continuing racial inequity and disparities is is generally galvanized by issues and events like the murder of George Floyd and a spate of scholarly works like Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. So the task force can sort of synthesize and summarize that research, but it's really up to um, popular literature, to the broader culture, to film and media to push and, and really open the eyes of people to help understand what's happening. And then task force, task force like this can then, you know, sort of narrow it into a set of specific policy prescriptions. But it's generally downstream from what ha- what's happening in the broader society and culture. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown on KQED Public Radio. Uh, here with us today is Stephen Menendian. He's assistant director of the Other and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. Uh, we're here talking about the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action and the California Reparations Task Force, which sent its full report to the governor and legislature today. I'm wondering, you know, so much of the debate over reparations does focus on cash payments, which are clearly mm-hmm. a huge part of this. But really, you know, if you look at this task force, um, they don't a lot of what they're proposing in here or suggesting in here doesn't even actually mention race. We're talking about police reforms, mm-hmm. allowing people in state prisons to vote. I know in your papers you talk about everything from homeownership uh, subsidies, rental assistance, universal pre-K. I mean, these are not things that are you know unique to one racial group. How important is that? And how do those policies fit into this idea of repair? Well, it's always been the case that for racial justice advocacy, for racial equity uh, activists, there's always been a mix of policy recommendations, some that are race-specific and others that are universal but have a disparate racial impact. I'll give you a couple examples. So one of the major calls for reform in recent years has been bail reform given an understanding of how communities of color, particularly communities, poor communities of color, are disproportionately surveilled and policed, right, and targeted for enforcement, criminal law enforcement. And so bail reform ostensibly applies to everyone. Doesn't matter what your race, what your income, et cetera. Um, But it has a disparate effect. Another example, in the 1960s, the United States passed an amendment prohibiting a poll tax, the application of a poll tax. Now, everyone understood that the poll tax was used by Southern states to disenfranchise Black voters. But in deciding how to frame that law, they had a choice. They could do it in universal terms, just say poll taxes are prohibited, or they could say poll taxes are prohibited when applied to Black voters. They chose the former rather than the latter. That's not unusual. A lot of racial, let's say, justice Uh, victories are framed in universal terms with an understanding that they have a disproportionate impact on Black or Hispanic or other Americans. And how does the, you know, legal outlook uh, now, especially with today's ruling on affirmative action, maybe frame that choice to be more or less explicit about race and reparations? I mean, the Supreme Court decision today, they again reiterated, you know, reducing societal discrimination does not constitute a compelling interest that justifies race-based state action. 
What does that mean for reparations? Well, that's where these two events converge and intersect most directly. Um, what the Supreme Court, at least a majority of the court, is saying today is that the 14th Amendment essentially prohibits race-based, that is, race-specific policymaking. So any uh, state effort from the state legislature to try and award to Black Americans a reparations is going to run into the buzzsaw of the federal courts. Um, even if they try and say it's a remedy for past harm and tailored to that, I think federal courts are going to look skeptically at that. Now, it's worth noting that California is a Prop 209 state. We have on the books laws that prohibit uh, race-based policymaking in the areas of education, contracting, and employment. Now, it does not cover reparations if it's cash payments and so forth. Um, but this new interpretation of the Constitution, I think, presents a formidable barrier to race-specific cash payments um, as envisaged by the task force. So, like, meaning that essentially somebody could file a lawsuit as a taxpayer, potentially, and say, and take that up to the Supreme Court. Close, basically. Yeah. 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 But, sorry. Well, just I'll add here, what about the avenue for descendants of slaves? Does that now become, I guess, the approach that's more legally feasible? I think that would that would be more likely to pass muster. I think you'll probably still get some skeptical justices. It's an open question how this Supreme Court would resolve that. It's actually something that came up in oral argument uh, in these cases back way back in October 31st, which was Justice Kavanaugh asked, well, what if an applicant to UNC said, mm, I'm a descendant of, of, of American slaves? Uh, would that be a proxy for race? And the court, of course, couldn't resolve that during oral, oral argument, but it did come up. And uh, petitioner looked at that skeptically, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's an open question. Yeah. I mean, back to this kind of split screen, you know, we see a really strong response to today's affirmative action ruling from folks like our governor, Gavin Newsom, and other California Democrats. And yet we have a ban on affirmative action in public... Uh, education and public contracting here in California. It right. passed in 1996 and it was affirmed essentially by voters in 2020 um, when they defeated Prop 16. Do you think the poli like how do you see the politics of that? And does that send any sort of message to liberals and Democrats who are pushing on any of this conversation? Well, the proponent of those measures, as some folks may remember, was Ward Connerly, oh, yeah. who was a former member of the Board of Regents for the University of California. And he started in California, but he spread these initiatives in other states. So Michigan adopted one, Proposal 2, the state of Washington adopted one. And in 2019, the state of Washington came, voters came within a whisker, a hair uh, half a percentage of the vote of, of reversing that. It was very surprising that the voters in 2020 in California actually doubled down uh, so emphatically on, on Prop 209. Um, it's, it, look, one thing I would just, just emphasize again is that um, it does not cover reparations. Prop 209 by its own term would not, there's a lot of areas it doesn't cover. It doesn't cover housing, it doesn't cover infrastructure, it doesn't cover healthcare. But the, the, area of overlap that doesn't exist here that's really important is that the Supreme Court's decisions today also extend to private institutions. Mm -hmm. So public universities like Stanford or USC or Pomona, those are all now covered by this decision, but they're not covered by Prop 209, which only covers public institutions. But I guess on the, on the political front, the lack of backlash to banning affirmative action in California, though in the way it's different than, you know, 
Prop 187 or even what we saw at at the national level with the Dobbs decision on abortion last year. Should that send any signal from what we learned in the state with 209 to national politicians, especially Democrats who are trying to frame how they might react to this decision today from the Supreme Court? Well, I would caution them from overreading those decisions. If there's a, anything we've learned from the history of California, it's that the public has generally supported a lot of, frankly, racist uh, ballot initiatives. And the effort to do the right thing has often met with public opposition. So, for example, many of you probably remember uh, the Rumsford Fair Housing Act, which was adopted uh, in 1963, was overturned by the voters a year later. In 1964, same thing with the Berkeley Fair Housing Ordinance the same year. So uh, doing the right thing isn't always popular among the public, but it ends up being the right thing policy-wise. So uh, that's why we have representative government rather than uh, having the voters vote on every single you know item that could come before them. Wow speak for yourself. I mean, in California, I feel like we do vote on everything. All (laughs) right, just about a minute left, Stephen. And, you know, you're saying this is the right thing. A lot of people disagree with that. I'm wondering if somebody, I mean, doesn't maybe want to read a 600 page court opinion or, or task force. What would you suggest folks like look into what would what might be a more compelling uh, narrative or read for for people? I think the entry point for most folks are going to be the books that have made the bestseller lists that are really effective at speaking to the public. So Richard Rothstein's book, um, The Color of Law, is still a landmark book to try and really understand this history in a granular way with lots of vivid vignettes and stories. I think also Doug Massey and Nancy Denton's American Apartheid from the early 90s is still a wonderful book, also was cited by Justice, Justice Jackson in her dissent today. There are a number of other great books out there that lay out this history. But I think, again, the executive summary of the task force is a remarkable uh, historical document. And also the um, on our website, we have a lot of the testimonies. There's no substitute from hearing from the scholars, including myself, who was invited to speak before uh, the task force. Just listening to those and hearing them and seeing all that data is really vivid and important. And I'm not throwing shade on the task no, force work. A, it's it's well written. There's a lot of history in there yeah. that, you know, you didn't get building missions out of popsicle sticks. <laughs> Stephen Menendian is the assistant director of the Other and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. Stephen, thanks for coming on today. Great to be with you. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. You can sign up for more politics coverage uh, by signing up for our Political Breakdown newsletter written by our colleague Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez. You can find it at kqed.org slash newsletters. Our engineer is Christopher Beal. I'm Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.